The philosopher Harry Frankfurt once said that one of the most salient features of our culture is that there's so much bullshit. It's hard to disagree with him. I mean, look at us. We're constantly distracting ourselves with meaningless noise, empty calories, and uninformative information. You know, bullshit. So much of what we pay attention to is pure, unadulterated bullshit. Yet, there's a paradox here, because every little thing we do expresses something about what we value. But if that's true, then why is it we always seem to be pursuing experiences that don't bring us any value? Why are we squandering so much of our attention on bullshit? Is it possible that we can't tell the difference between things that matter and things that don't? That would be a shame. I mean, time's running out. Between climate change, nuclear Armageddon, the rise of extremism and all the rest, we're on the brink of total catastrophe here. And even if we survive those, we're all dying anyway. Look at you. You're doing it right now. How much of your remaining time do you really want to spend reacting to videos of strangers lip-syncing to songs you don't even like? So, what better time is there than right now, in contemplation of your imminent doom, to think about what it is that makes certain things valuable, and to learn to filter out all the bullshit from what actually matters in life? human welcome to wise hypocrites a podcast about the 10 questions of human existence i'm patrick a banking lawyer who saw the light and quit to dedicate my life to art donuts and philosophical pontifications probably best left to a crusty bong water infused college dorm couch don't say you haven't been warned previously on this podcast Long story short, around 14 billion years ago existence came crashing in literally out of nowhere and if you ask me that's when the trouble started You know the rest. For a while, it's all just stuff bumping into other stuff. And all of a sudden, here I am, vomited into existence with barely a clue of who I am or what's going on. So what do I do? (laughs) Let me get my bearings first. Take a quick look around. Something seems to be happening. And whatever it is, it's happening to me. So what is this me thing at the center of existence? Who am I? And what about all these other things out there that are not me things? I mean, what's up with those? What are they? Are they even real? I know I'm real. I'm here, right behind my face. But they're not here. They're over there. And here and there, very different kinds of places. Is over there even a real place? Am I not imagining it? And how would I even know? Okay, great. Not at all a mindfuck. So, let's recap. I exist, maybe, and other things also exist, maybe. Great. Now what? Now, you might say, the next question is, what should I do? But I don't think we're quite there yet. Oh, by the way, this is the fourth installment in a series about the 10 questions of human existence, the perennial questions that have shaped every choice, action, and experience in human history. Yes, I said it. But back to us. What should I do? Nope, too soon for that. Because, okay, congrats, we've dealt with the descriptive questions, you know, who am I? What is? How do I know? But what should I do? That's not just a different question, it's a different category of question. For starters, it's not descriptive, It's prescriptive. You know prescriptive, right? As in prescription. Like, you know, when you go to the doctor, the doctor will ask you what's wrong, and you'll say something like, oh, I'm gassy. That's a description. You're describing what's wrong with you. Well, then the doctor, what do they do? They take out their pad and they scribble down, you know, take medicine, avoid elevators, all that stuff. That's a prescription. It's not describing a fact about what is. It's prescribing an action that you should do. 
Descriptions are is statements about facts. Prescriptions are should statements about, well, values, I guess. And today we're going to explore a little gap between those two things. Take this in. Everything we do says something about what matters to us. Even the little boring stuff we do that we don't pay any attention to, like, oh, you know, I'm just going to reposition this pencil on my desk so it's straight. Even that, literally everything, from the moment you wake up. I mean, why do you get out of bed in the morning even when you want to sleep longer? You might say, because I have to. Bullshit. You get out of bed because in that moment, something else matters to you more. Going to the gym, having a job, catching a plane, whatever. You have a hierarchy of value. And in that moment, getting out of bed is higher up that hierarchy than staying in bed. Now, if you didn't care, if you didn't care about catching your flight or not getting fired, well, you wouldn't get out of bed. It literally wouldn't matter. But it does, so you do. This is true for everything. You know, our jobs, how we spend our time, who we spend our time with, what movies we watch, everything, because everything we do is a choice to do this thing instead of that other thing. Right, I see you back there with your hand raised going like, oh my god, that is so privileged. What about people who don't have a choice? I mean, fair enough, but no. Privilege is about the quality of our choices, not about whether we have a choice or not. Whether we're choosing between lobster and foie gras, or a shit sandwich and nothing, we are still choosing. And this is something that Viktor Frankl talks about in his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning. Now, if you don't know who Viktor Frankl is, well, he was a famous psychiatrist who writes about his experience as a prisoner in Auschwitz. Now, prisoner in Auschwitz, not a lot of privilege. I mean, of course, he was a white male and everything, but you know what? It wasn't doing much for him. Anyway, even in those circumstances, in a Nazi concentration camp, one of the worst places anyone could find themselves in the entirety of human history, he still had a choice. And his choice was on how he would react to what was happening to him. If Viktor Frankl in Auschwitz had a choice, we all have a choice. Even, and I'll give you a more extreme example, what's more extreme than Auschwitz, right? Action movies, I guess. You know, action movies, there's always a scene where the hero is breaking into the villain's lair and suddenly the lights go on and he's surrounded by henchmen with their guns pointed at him and, oh my God, it was a trap. And he looks over to the sidekick and the sidekick looks all pale and says, I'm sorry, Jack, he took my kids. I had no choice. Yeah, even that guy had a choice and he did choose to betray the hero. And the reason he chose that is because he valued his kid's safety more than his own loyalty to the hero. Simple as that. So yeah, everything we do is based on our value hierarchy, on what we find good, bad, useful, boring, pleasant, painful, fun, scary, beautiful, interesting, delicious, disgusting, and so on. But then here's a question. If our choices are driven by what matters, then why do we spend so much of our time on stuff that doesn't? We eat shitty food, we listen to shitty music, we obsess over bullshit products nobody needs, and bullshit celebrities no one even knows why they're famous. We have all these shitty conversations with strangers online that accomplish absolutely nothing except make us feel shitty afterwards. Everywhere we look, it's just meaningless noise and cheap entertainment and bad information and empty calories. It's like we're caught up in an endless flood of bullshit. If everything we do says something about what we value, then what does it say about us that we spend so much time engaging with bullshit? Could it be that our answers to the question, what matters, seem so obvious to us that we forget to ask the question in the first place? Now, you could say, hey man, stop blaming me. Evolution has given me decision-making systems that are wired a certain way. And right now, those systems are being exploited. 
by greedy corporations and advertising agencies and social media platforms desperate for my attention, my bullshit detection systems are being hacked. What we really should be talking about is concrete policies that can change all that and help us get our attention back to the things that matter. But you see, that just doesn't do it for me. Because, okay, policy is great. Get your local tribune on the phone and now what? You go back to your phone, scrolling on TikTok, waiting for a regulation to come along and change the algorithm. No, I prefer, while we're waiting for those great policies to happen, to focus on things that I at least have some chance of controlling. The kinds of things that Viktor Frankl says are my choice. The most interesting question isn't who's going to stop the evil corporation from fucking with my head. It's what can I do to start to recognize What is worth my attention and what isn't? There's a whole universe of experiences to be had. And a pretty big difference between the ones that bring us enrichment and meaning and value and the ones that bring us nothing. So, let's learn to spot that difference. One of the main ways we lose sight of what matters is by confusing between different kinds of value. Here's a joke to illustrate the point. And disclaimer, it's not a funny joke. It's not funny at all, in fact. It's more like a little humorous tale that my father used to tell me about his hometown of Napoli, Naples in Italy. But it's one of those universal jokes. You know what I mean? Like every culture has its version of it. Anyway, here it is. A lawyer is visiting Naples on a business trip and he's walking around going to meetings and on his way, he comes across a Neapolitan lying down in the middle of the street on a patch of grass, just lying there. Of course, the lawyer is, what? What's that? And so he goes up to the man and asks him what he's doing. And the Napolitan says, what do you mean, what am I doing? I'm enjoying the sun. The lawyer says, enjoying the sun? But it's a weekday. (laughs) Don't you have anywhere to be? What about your job? Job? I don't have a job. What do I need a job for? The lawyer is baffled by this question. What do you need a job for? Well, the obvious things, right? So you can make money. So you can save up. Save up? What for? Well, I guess so you can retire one day. Go out and enjoy life. And the Napolitan just looks at him and says, what do you think I'm doing now? The thing I like about this joke is that it seems like it's saying one thing, but actually it's saying something else. The moral of the story is different than what it first appears. Because at a first glance, you could think that this joke is just saying something like, live in the moment, you know, enjoy the simple things in life. But actually, the point the joke is making is a little more subtle than that. And it's not live in the moment. It's something like keep your eyes on the prize. Because what's going on here is not some grand philosophical debate about what constitutes the good life. And on the one hand, you have the lawyer saying it's be productive, work hard, etc. And on the other, you've got the Napolitan saying, no, no, just lie down in the middle of the street. That's not what's happening here. After this kind of Socratic line of questioning that the Napolitan takes the lawyer down, it's actually revealed that they agree that the point of life, what you really want to be doing, is enjoying it. The difference is that the lawyer has gotten himself so tangled up in that working ethos that he's lost sight of the bigger picture, like why he even works in the first place. It's the kind of classic scenario where you go off to the supermarket because you needed milk, but you get distracted by the whole supermarket experience and you forget to buy the one thing you needed. Now, the lawyer here, he's not just forgotten to buy the milk, he's forgotten to even leave the supermarket. He's still there, you know, sort of like hypnotized by the fridge section or whatever. And that's the key insight of this joke, that we all sometimes get sidetracked by bullshit and take our eyes off what really matters. And one way we do this is by confusing two different kinds of value, instrumental value 
and intrinsic value. This distinction goes to the heart of an area of philosophy known as axiology, the study of value. So let's open a little Axiology 101 tangent. There are some things that we think are good, but they're not just good, they're good for something. They're like a means to an end. Now we say these things have instrumental value. They're a tool or an instrument to obtain something else. Now the classic example is money. I mean, what even is money? It's a shitty paper. You can't do anything with it. You can't eat it. You can't write on it. You can't, you can't even wipe your ass with it. It's too uncomfortable. It's not beautiful. It doesn't smell. Nothing. Yet we still think that money has a kind of value because it can be used as a means to obtaining something else, something that we value, you know, like diamonds and radiators or ketamine or whatever. Now, that's instrumental value. But there are other things that we think are inherently valuable. They're not good for something. They're just good. Things like saving an innocent life, or even better, a Fabergé egg. These things have intrinsic value. They're not a means to an end. They're an end in of themselves. Now, in the joke, the lawyer has got these two different kinds of values mixed up. He's thinking of work as though it were the whole point of life. But he's forgotten that to him, work is just a means to an end, to you know retirement. It only has instrumental value. This is a trap we all fall into. It's just kind of easy to get caught up in process and forget what we're trying to accomplish with that process. You know, the process kind of becomes the point. And maybe one reason it's so easy to fall into this trap is because identifying intrinsic value isn't as straightforward as it sounds. Well, does it even sound straightforward? No, actually it doesn't. So let's just say it's not straightforward. Think about it. Ask yourself, what do I value intrinsically? Not just as a means to an end, but for its own sake. You know, what are the classics here? You know, love, health, peace, rock and roll. <laughs> Let's go with peace, right? Something we all think of as having intrinsic value. But if you look closely, is peace really valuable just for its own sake? Or is it also a means to an end? Couldn't we say that the reason peace is good is because of all the things that peace allows us to do? You know, like build things, like uh, have... Uh, long, healthy lives, we can grow, we can follow our passions, we can not die screaming, things like that that we value. And so peace maybe is just a means to an end to those things. I don't know about you, but I find that whenever I look really closely at the kinds of things that I think of as intrinsically good, they all start to look a bit like means to an end. I'm all for the idea that things like art and beauty and knowledge, that these things have intrinsic value, that they're inherently enriching and ennobling and they fill our lives with meaning and all the good stuff. But could it be that I only value these things instrumentally because I derive some enjoyment from them or some well-being from them because they make me feel a certain way? The sound of Louis Armstrong's trumpet fills me with utter joy. Where's the intrinsic value? In the trumpet or in the joy? Now, I see why it might sound like I'm saying that everything is just a means to an end, which could be interpreted as being a bit dark. But that's actually not what I'm saying. I don't think that, by the way. And uh, Aristotle agrees. (laughs) He's a good guy to have in your corner. In the opening chapters of his famous uh, Nicomachean Ethics, he says that there has to be at least one thing that is intrinsically good. The way Aristotle sees it is kind of like a pyramid of instrumentally valuable things all leading up to a supreme, intrinsically valuable good 
that everything else derives its value from. And what is that thing? Well, some people say it's pleasure, some people say it's truth, God, of course, God is always a good one, freedom, things like that. Me, I don't really care what it is, because, thank fuck, living a good life doesn't require that we solve ancient philosophical problems. Nor does it require that we get all self-helpy, you know, find your true north or any of that. We don't need to identify the one thing that sits at the top of our personal pyramid of value. But, if we set our ambitions just a bit more modestly... There's endless scenarios where we can actually get a lot out of asking the question, is this instrumentally valuable or intrinsically valuable? You know when you're watching a TV series and it's amazing, it's awesome, you're just like binging through it, but then some time passes and it's become a bit of a chore to sit through. You know, now you're on season seven, you're thinking of, oh, the next episode and you're kind of not really wanting to sit through it. Why are you watching? Now, you could tell yourself it's because, well, I'm invested now. You know, I have to see how it ends. But do you really? Because if you're getting a sinking feeling every time you think of how many seasons are left, maybe it's not that you're interested in how it ends as much as you're interested in that it ends. You just want it to be over. So why don't you stop watching? Perhaps you've lost sight of the fact that the only reason you started watching the show was because you wanted something to enjoy. The show was never intrinsically valuable. It was a means to an end. But then at some point, without you even realizing it, watching the show kind of became the point, and now it's costing you. Because you're bored when you could be doing something you actually do enjoy. Stop watching. See, philosophy helps you with Netflix. We can apply the same logic, we can ask the same question for pretty much anything. Careers, relationships, how many people stay with partners or hang out with friends long after the relationships stop being enjoyable without realizing the reason they were in the relationships in the first place is because they used to be valuable. So, in the context of keeping our eyes on what matters, this distinction between intrinsic and instrumental value, super helpful. But we need to be careful not to overdo it, not to lean too far the other way. Because instrumental value is still valuable. Remember that Greek fable by Aesop, the grasshopper and the ants? It's summer. And the grasshopper is, you know, singing and dancing and making music and doing grasshopper shit. And meanwhile, the ants are just, you know, they're carrying food and bricks. They're just miserable working in the heat. And of course, what they're doing is they're storing up for the winter. And then the winter inevitably comes and the grasshopper's fucked. Because it's stuck in the cold with no food. And the ants have got all the food and they're inside and they're doing great. So the grasshopper knocks on the ant's door and says, hey guys, let me in. And the ants say, no, screw you, you should have worked harder. (laughs) These ants, they're Republicans. And so the grasshopper dies. And that's the moral of the story. Prepare for the future or else. Now, if you've been paying attention, you will have noticed something. And that is that this is the same story as the Neapolitan joke. It's just told from the opposite point of view. And seen under this light, now we're starting to think, well... Maybe the lawyer had a point. And the Neapolitan only really won the exchange because he got the last word. But if you stick around after the punchline, we would have seen the Neapolitan just get his jacket, go home, and he lives in a shitty apartment, and his wife is there furious, and she's shaking all these bills in his face, and he's an alcoholic, and he was only outside to get temporary respite from the abject misery of his life. I don't know. Anyway, Aesop's fable and the joke... They're two sides of the same story. And the bigger picture really requires both of them. Because the joke says, 
don't get too caught up in the instrumental stuff. Keep your eyes on the prize. But the fable reminds us that if we actually want that prize, there are games we need to play in order to win it. What matters is a question that lies at the intersection of value and relevance. Obviously, value, because if I ask you what matters, uh, the kinds of answers I'm expecting to hear are about things that you value, you know, things like uh, happiness and, and love and peace and good health, things like that. But also relevance, obviously, because there's another way we use this expression about mattering, and it's uh, in situations like this. If I'm telling you about a shitty little experience I had at the bank this morning, right, and maybe there was a long queue and the person in front of me was being a bit rude or loud or they were on their phone, the kind of frustrating little things that happen in our day-to-day lives that we then like to bitch about over drinks with our friends. And I'm telling you about this and I'm telling you about how it made me feel and, oh my God, I was already late and this was so annoying. And you interrupt me to ask me, what were you wearing? I'll be stumped. I'll be, what? Yeah, what were you wearing? And I'll say, why do you need to know that? It doesn't matter. What I mean by it doesn't matter is that my fashion choices just aren't relevant to you understanding what I'm trying to convey. So you see, we have two slightly different ways of using these expressions. You know, it matters, it doesn't matter, but they're intimately connected. And I want to explore that connection and point out two big problems that we have when we're trying to figure out what matters. The first big problem starts with relevance. There's an infinite amount of information you could potentially know about anything. And most of it isn't useful. It's not relevant to the specific thing we're trying to understand. It doesn't matter. Say I ask you right now to describe the scene around you. You're in a cafe. Let's pretend you're in a cafe and I say describe the cafe right now. There's going to be a ton of things you leave out of that description. All the background details, you know, all the the, the insects crawling in the cracks of the pavement, the dust on the back of the furniture, the the molecules in the air, the, the electromagnetic forces that hold those molecules together. All these things, they're all happening. They're all there. They're all part of the scene I ask you to describe, but you leave them out. Why? You leave them out because as soon as I say describe the scene, you're immediately going to apply a certain framing to the situation. You have to do that. Because without the framing, you're dealing with literally everything, everywhere. What happened? What happened where? What information are you looking for? You have to apply a framing because otherwise you're just dealing with the messy, unfiltered chaos of all of existence. A framing helps narrow things down to something manageable, something that you can understand and meaningfully communicate. Okay, so well done. You applied a framing and that now tells you what's relevant and what isn't. But hold on a minute. Who says your framing is the right one? Why do you get to make that call? Maybe I'm a particle physicist. And when I ask you to describe the cafe you're in, atoms and electrons are exactly what I'm excited to hear about. I don't care about the hot guy drinking a cortado at the next table. But of course, the answer is you decided the framework based on what mattered to you. And that's what we're always doing all the time. You walk into a bathroom And what you notice in that bathroom depends on whether you're there to buy the house or you're a plumber fixing the sink or you're a detective investigating a murder scene or you just really need to pee. 
And this, by the way, is what brings us full circle from relevance back to value. Because what is relevant depends on the framing that you apply to the situation. But what framing you apply to the situation depends on what you're looking for, on what you find interesting or important and meaningful. In short, what you value. Cool. So we have these relevance slash value framings and we apply them onto the chaos that is everything to filter out the stuff that matters from the stuff that doesn't. This filtering exercise, we call that distinguishing the signal from the noise. Signal and noise, very useful concepts from the field of statistics. They were popularized by Nate Silver. The signal is the information that we're looking for. That is communicating something meaningful. The noise is all the irrelevant stuff that gets in the way, that interferes or distracts us from detecting the signal. Figuring out what matters is largely a question of detecting the signal and ignoring the noise. But here's the second big problem. The ratio of signal to noise is always going to be heavily in noise's favor. Think about it. If the framework we apply determines that X, Y, and Z are relevant, well, what's irrelevant? A, B, C, D, E, everything else. Because whatever is relevant within our parameters makes everything else irrelevant. Signal is to noise what a single thing is to infinity. So picking out the signal from noise is always going to be a bit of a needle in a haystack kind of operation. So how do we look for needles in haystacks? First, we need to know what we're looking for. That means knowing what a needle looks like. Get a good sense of it and just focus on that and ignore all the haystack in the way. That's just noise. But here's a problem. Another one. I guess it's three big problems. Because in theory, needles don't really look like hay. You know, needles, hay, they're fairly easy to tell apart. But in practice, we're living in a world where noise isn't just there floating about randomly it's actively and aggressively trying to get in the way pretending to be signal it's it's waving at you it's saying hey look at me it's me i'm the signal you're looking for it's kind of like looking for a needle in a haystack where the hay has been made to look like needles fuck because in the real world we're often dealing with a very specific kind of noise a pernicious kind that has a name we're all familiar with. Bullshit. There's a philosopher, Harry Frankfurt, who uh, wrote a famous essay on bullshit, and he opens the essay with that quote from the beginning of this episode about how the world is so full of bullshit. And like noise drowning out the signal, When there's bullshit everywhere, it's very hard to focus on what matters. So, let's start by taking a look at bullshit so we can recognize it when we see it. What is bullshit? And I don't mean bullshit as in just bad, you know, where the word bullshit is just kind of a a catch-all for anything we don't like. Like, oh, how was the movie? It was bullshit. No, I mean things that are specifically bullshit. Like, what do we really mean when we say something is bullshit? I'm thinking things like influencer culture, fake news, advertising, of course, a lot of contemporary art, politicians, that sort of things. These these are the things that I want my definition to capture. What do they have in common? 
I'd say they're all kind of low on substance. You know, they have a lot of form, maybe. But when you look into them a bit deeper, there's kind of nothing there. They're just empty. They have zero value. And also, they're insincere about what they're doing. Form over substance, zero value, insincerity. These are the ingredients that we're looking for, for a definition of bullshit. And see what the philosophers say about that. So back to Harry Frankfurt. In his essay on bullshit, he's attempting to lay the foundations for a theory of bullshit. Isn't that something? That's, that's philosophy for you. Theory of bullshit. Now, Frankfurt is specifically talking about verbal bullshit. Bullshit in the context of speech. And in that context, Frankfurt defines bullshit as speech that attempts to persuade without regard to the truth. Now, as you can hear, there's two elements to this definition. First, bullshit attempts to persuade. What does it mean to attempt to persuade? I think to attempt to persuade is effectively to say, what I'm saying is true and I want you to believe it. Now, doesn't all speech do that? Well, no. Jokes, poetry, fiction, they're not playing the game of truth. They're looking maybe to entertain or to produce an emotional response, but they're not trying to convince you that they're true. So not all speech is about the truth. So what Frankfurt is saying when he says that bullshit attempts to persuade is that bullshit is positioning itself as being concerned with the truth. Except, of course, bullshit is unconcerned with the truth. That's the second element of the definition, you know, without regard to the truth. Okay, so what does that mean? That bullshit is just lies? Actually, no. I mean, yes, clearly there's some overlap between bullshit and lies, but Frankfurt specifically points out this key difference between bullshit and lies. See, for all that it is false, a lie is still concerned with the truth. A lie is defined by the truth. It's, it's the opposite of the truth. For a lie to be a lie, it has to be not the truth. But bullshit is unconcerned with the truth. It doesn't care what the truth is. It just cares about winning you over. Like a politician. Your politician just wants your vote. If that means lying, the politician will lie. If it means telling the truth, they'll tell the truth. The bullshit, it doesn't care because truth or lies, it's all just bullshit. So in Frankfurt's definition, we actually find all these ingredients that I mentioned earlier. The low value, the insincerity, of course, and even the form over substance of it all. But here, you know, Frankfurt's a bit more subtle. You see, by saying that bullshit is unconcerned with the truth, while pretending to care about the truth, remember, it attempts to persuade, we're saying that there's a disconnect between the form, what it says it's doing, and the substance, what it's actually doing. As Frankfurt says, the essence of bullshit isn't that it's false, but that it's phony. And here we find the thread that we really need to tug on if we can understand bullshit, not just in speech, but in other areas as well. You know, bullshit art, bullshit food, bullshit everything. And here there's another famous philosopher, some say even more famous than Frankfurt. His name is Plato. Oh no, Plato. You've heard of him. Specifically, his dialogue Gorgias. The dialogue's named after a philosopher, Gorgias, so Gorgias, a famous uh, sophist. The sophist was essentially a teacher of rhetoric, the, the art of public speaking. Basically, it's someone you'd go to and you'd pay them to teach you how to win arguments. 
They were really popular in classical anthems. That they were also criticized, kind of the same way today we criticize stereotypical lawyers who are good at winning debates and manipulating words, but maybe don't really care about justice and what's right. It's a kind of criticism that stuck because even today, sophistry, you know, the word sophist, it's used disparagingly. You know, you say that someone is a sophist, it's not a compliment. It means that their arguments sound clever. But there's something fishy going on, you know. They're perhaps trying to persuade without regard to the truth. You could say that the sophist is the ultimate bullshitter. And that's kind of what Plato's dialogue, Gorgias, is all about. It begins with this question of what is rhetoric, you know, the art of speaking. And Socrates, you know, he's usually the main character in Plato's dialogues. He's um, making this point that rhetoric has nothing to do with justice because it can be used for injustice, to win arguments regardless of what's true and just and right. So basically, rhetoric is bullshit. And then Socrates makes this analogy. A healthy body sometimes needs medicine to fix it. And it also needs gymnastics to keep it healthy. Medicine and gymnastics are good for the body. But there are also certain fake variants of these, fake versions of medicine and gymnastics that trick you into thinking they're good for you, but actually they're not. The fake version of medicine is confectionery, cooking. He calls it cooking. It depends on the translation. But imagine a pastry chef feeding you cake when you actually need medicine and vitamins. Sure, it'll taste good. Maybe it'll even make you feel good. But is it good for you? And... The phony version of gymnastics is, well, let's call it cosmetics. Think wearing makeup and fancy clothes, or maybe even using plastic surgery to give yourself a six-pack or a round butt. It'll make you look good, perhaps, but is it the real thing? Now, these things, they're not necessarily bad for us, but they're indirectly bad for us because they distract us from the real thing and take their place. They substitute themselves for the real thing. This is how Socrates puts it, quote, having no regard for men's highest interests, these fakes easily fool the unwary, deceiving them into believing they are of the highest value to them, end quote. So basically, cakes and plastic surgery are fake bullshit versions of things that are actually good for us. And that's what Frankfurt's verbal bullshit does too. It pretends to be the real thing by attempting to persuade, so deceiving us into believing it cares about the truth, but it has no regard for man's interest, in that context, the truth. So, what can we extrapolate from all this? That bullshit is a fake that replaces something valuable, but has no connection to what makes that thing valuable. Now, I see bullshit fitting this description everywhere. Influencers, who post bikini pics with captions like, philosophy is a frame of mind. Now that's bullshit because the pic is presenting itself as wanting to inspire you or motivate you or whatever, but really, it just wants to make you horny, so you follow. There's no connection there between the bikini butt and the aspirational values it's pretending to represent. Fake news is the same, you know, it pretends to be real news, but it doesn't care if it's reporting facts or not, it's just doing it for the clicks. A lot of contemporary art is like this. It adopts elements that we associate with high art, uh, with meaningful and insightful commentary, but actually it's not 
really trying to even say anything. It just wants the, you to think that it is because it just wants your attention so that the artist becomes famous. But the artist doesn't have anything to say. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of upcoming artist who doesn't really have anything to say, but will like throw like an actual turd in the middle of the ground and people will be like, oh, such an interesting commentary. No, it's not. They're just trying to get a rise out of you. This phony, all-style, no-substance brand of bullshit, it's dominant in our culture. So it's fundamental that we learn to recognize this bullshit when we see it, so that we don't get tricked into wasting our time and attention on things that don't matter. But as we said, when we're looking for needles in haystacks, it really helps to know what a needle looks like. So just as it's important to uh, recognize bullshit... It's also important, in fact, maybe more important, to recognize the things that have real, lasting value. Distinguishing the signal from the noise requires identifying exactly what we value and why. The first time I went back to my university town of Edinburgh, years after I graduated, I was so excited to go back to this place where I'd had so many of the fondest memories of my life. But just one day in, I realized something. It didn't feel good to be back. In fact, I felt sad. Things just weren't the same. And that's when I realized that the thing that had made Edinburgh so special wasn't George Square or Old Town or Calton Hill or the castle or the pubs of Grassmarket or all those other things. It was my friends. It was the people I had formed all those memories with. They were the ones that had made me feel the way I did about Edinburgh. And without them, Edinburgh was just a very pretty town. Now, a few years later, I went to a wedding in the US, in Georgia, where I reunited with those old friends from college. And once again, I felt all those emotions that had bonded me with Edinburgh, those emotions I'd been looking for. In this small town outside Atlanta, that's where I found my Edinburgh. Now this tells me something. If I can get clear on that signal, if I can identify exactly what it is that I value about the things that I value, that can help me access similarly valuable experiences in different places. Except we're not always able to do this. Because just as we sometimes lose sight of what matters by confusing between different kinds of value, instrumental, intrinsic, we also often misidentify the source of the value. Take food, a dish you really love. What is it about that dish that makes you love it? Me, I absolutely love Sholazard. Sholazard is an Iranian dessert. It's a kind of rice pudding made with saffron and a bunch of other spices. It's delicious. It's very buttery and rich. Now, if I'm the kind of person who doesn't really question my food experiences, and you know, all I know is whether I like what I'm eating or not, I, I know I like this dish, but I'm not really distinguishing the signal from the noise. I might enjoy this cholizat, and the next time I go to a restaurant somewhere, I might see rice pudding on the menu. And my brain will associate, ah, oh, rice pudding. I like that rice pudding, so I'll probably like this one, and I order it. But then I taste it, and I don't like it. Because here's the thing. Rice pudding was never the right signal. Unbeknownst to me, what I actually enjoyed about Cholesart wasn't the rice or the sugar. It was a specific combo of spices. 
that this English rice pudding just doesn't have. Focusing on the wrong elements has distracted me from the signal. So now I'm left wondering why this rice pudding doesn't scratch that Sholizar ditch. Now someone comes along and tells me, hey, you know, Sholizar has saffron in it. And I go, aha, saffron, that's the signal. And so immediately I run to an Italian restaurant and I order ossobuco. Because ossobuco, of course, comes with a risotto alla milanese, a risotto, a rice that has saffron in it. But again, I'm not satisfied. It doesn't scratch the Sholizard itch. Because you see, the signal was never saffron alone. It was also cardamom and cinnamon and a bunch of other things that all came together to create this valuable experience that is Sholizard. Now, if I had known all this, I wouldn't have been on the lookout for rice puddings, but for certain combos of spices. And then I might realize that drinking an Indian masala chai would do a better job than any rice pudding of scratching that Sholizard itch. Now, I was explaining this to my wife, who is from Iran, and she makes me Sholizard, and her reaction was, well, why does any of this matter? And I'll tell you why I think it matters, because... Correctly identifying the signal, identifying exactly what it was that made us value a certain experience, makes us much more effective at pursuing valuable experiences more generally. Unless we understand what it is we ascribe value to and why, in a very real sense, we wander about our lives aimlessly, just waiting for great experiences to randomly occur. Or worse. We look for valuable experiences in the wrong places and we end up in careers, in relationships, in lives that don't reflect what matters to us. That and, of course, bad pudding. We're getting close to the end now, but uh, before I end this, I want to address the elephant left in the room. Because we've talked about different ways of valuing something, intrinsically, instrumentally. We've talked about distinguishing the signal from the noise and found a helpful definition of bullshit. But one thing we haven't defined in this episode about value, is value. I mean, we've said we need to correctly identify it, but we haven't really said what it is. What exactly is it that makes something valuable? What makes it good? What makes something matter? This is a very difficult question, because different things matter to different people for different reasons. Yet, Surely there's got to be something that it is, that it means for something to matter. Some quality that we can point to and say, ha-ha, this is it. This, This thing, this possesses the quality of mattering, and this other thing doesn't. But what would this quality of mattering even be? Maybe this is a place to start. I mean, we've defined bullshit, so whatever mattering is could be the opposite of bullshit. If bullshit is meaningless, misleading, and unrewarding, then what matters must be meaningful and informative and enriching. On this view, mattering is like the nourishing meal to bullshit's Pringles. But this doesn't really help, because obviously there's that whole subjective element. To me, hip-hop might be meaningful and enriching and all those good things, and to you it just might be bullshit. Whereas to you, a certain political issue might matter very much, and to me, it just might not. So mattering, whatever it is, is probably not something that's inherently within the thing that matters. Perhaps it's we that put the mattering in what matters. Which, to be fair, seems rather obvious, but you know what? Sometimes it's good to spell out the obvious, because 
the, the thing about obvious is that you know some things are so obvious we forget they're even there. So here's another thing that's obvious. That if we're the ones doing all the mattering, it's our own attitudes and approach that makes things matter or not matter to us. So it's not like things have some objective quality of value or bullshittery that they possess innately. In fact, it's the way we interact with them that makes them valuable or meaningless. Meaning that with the right engagement, with the kind of openness that makes us more receptive to to good, we can find the value in more or less anything. We can find beauty and meaning and depth in the red hot chili peppers. Well, (laughs) perhaps not depth. But you get my point. And conversely, with the wrong approach, we can know every note Bach had ever composed and derive nothing from it. And we can find just as much true and lasting pleasure in a Michelin star meal as in a truly phenomenal donut. We put the value in things by how we engage with them. But of course, a word of caution Because this is not a license to say, well, you know, I like what I like. It's all subjective. So I enjoy frozen pizza and Nickelback and that's just who I am. That's what matters to me. So no need to explore further. Now, that's the wrong takeaway for three reasons. And that's where I'm going to end it. First reason, maybe it's not that you really love those things. It's just that you're used to them. So don't limit yourself by just sticking to what you know. Open yourself up. Explore a little. Find new things, taste an okonomiyaki, listen to some better music, nickelback a shit. Second, because the more things you love, the more experiences you enjoy, the more value in your life. And so the better your life. And third, because sure, it is subjective. There is at least an element of subjectivity to all of this. I mean, if you love nickelback, that's great. I'm not judging your shitty taste. It just means that there's something about you, you know, your chemistry, your experiences, your memories that triggers a positive reaction when you listen to that crap. But there are other things that also just happen to trigger these positive experiences, but in a very large proportion of people, in such a proportion of people, that it becomes statistically interesting. Things like Bernini's sculptures or Shakespeare's plays, or Miles Davis's music, or French wine, and yes, also things like pizza and the Beatles and Batman. These things have appealed to so many people across so many cultures and generations that they appear to transcend subjectivity. Could it be that these things do have that inherent quality of greatness, that quality of mattering that we were looking for earlier? And what would that quality be? What quality do Verdi's operas share with the Wu-Tang Clan? What do the Mona Lisa and the world's greatest burger have in common? Or, more simply, is it just that there's something about us as human beings that just happens to be tuned in exactly the right way that these great things just happen to resonate with most of us, irrespective of our backgrounds and tastes? And if so, wouldn't that mean that there are some things, some experiences, like the Sistine Chapel, or Moby Dick, or Stanley Kubrick's films, that tell us something valuable, something that matters, about what makes us human? Don't you want to find out? So yeah, continue to value what you value, subjectively. 
we should do our best to gain exposure to the kinds of things that others have valued over time. To the great arts, great music, great film, great everything. Because I believe that if we open ourselves with curiosity, with a spirit of exploration, to those experiences in art, in culture, in food that have moved hearts, minds and bellies over centuries and even millennia, I think we'll find that we are no more or less human than all those who came before. And that the things that have enriched the lives of countless generations before ours might just be able to enrich ours as well. <laughs>